Welcome to the Free The Wage Slave podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping frustrated nine to fivers get out of the rat race and succeed working for themselves. I'm Sky Kilji, a former corporate insurance wage slave who now travels the world year round working from my laptop. In today's podcast, we talk to one of my dear friends, Helen Chorley. Helen's a full-time property investor with projects across Europe. Each of those projects ranges from £800,000 to up to £16 million in value. That's a lot of due diligence, and Helen is incredibly experienced in property, as you can tell. She spends her time managing her property investments, surrounding herself with some of the world's most inspirational teachers, and dividing her time between London, Malta, and Bermuda. But it didn't start with a rich family and access to the best schools. Helen built everything from the ground up. In part one of our interview, you'll hear about the childhood that created the curiosity and competitiveness in the young Helen. You'll hear about her career in dancing and becoming British ballet champion, attending Oxford University, the height of education in the UK, and navigating the class divide and the male-dominated subjects that she chose. You'll hear about Helen stepping onto the trading floor of J.P. Morgan, Helen's view of women and how they succeed in male industries, and the catalyst moment where Helen realized she had to leave the banking industry and leave behind her lucrative career as a vice president at J.P. Morgan. Last of all and best of all, you will hear the story of how she got out just a few months before the 2008 crash of the financial markets. There's so much in this episode. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Let's get into it. So I'm really, really happy to be joined today by my good friend, Helen. We've known each other for, what, maybe three, four years now, Helen? What is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, at least that. Yes. Yes. Thank you for uh, having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. We, we tried to do this a little while ago at the start of COVID, and we just had tech problems. We, we had to use old laptops, and all of that stuff prevented it, but it's the time now, finally. I'm very happy. We did. We did. That's very on brand for me and my um, lack of technical skills. Yeah, it was a shame we couldn't get it done that day. But actually, I'm even happier to be doing it now because I'm back home in Malta and I'm kind of nice and relaxed and busy. But I, um, yeah, I'm a better version of me here. So hopefully it'll be a good chat today. Absolutely. I think we've all changed through the COVID uh, situation. So yeah, in in a good place over here as well. It's definitely the right time to share your story. And it's a story I've wanted to share for so long. I've kind of learned things about Helen over the years. And Mm -hmm. uh, every time I get another little tidbit, it just continues to impress me more and more. And I just knew this is a story that my audience need to hear. So I'm so happy to bring that to everybody today. Oh, bless you. That's very kind. So let's start with that story. And typically, I like to go all the way back. So let's talk about who Helen was as a girl, who Helen was when she was growing up. Oh, sure. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from the north of England, the northwest between um, Liverpool and Manchester. And I was, gosh, a very lively, curious child. It's really funny that people used to say to me, I don't know where you get your energy from which is quite funny when when you hear the rest of my story and the challenges that I have had with energy. But I was quite geeky. I was quite, I'm not sure I was like ever one of those kids that really fitted in. So I guess that's part of my story is I I had to make my own box. I was never going to fit in a box that anybody else wanted me to fit in. So I loved school. I loved learning. I still love learning. You know, that's a passion both you and I share. I just 
I love to understand things and know how things work. And I'm, you know, I definitely still have that, that geeky interest. So I did well at school, but I did, did well because I loved it and I, and I enjoyed it. My interest and my passion as a child was dancing. I, I danced from being, gosh, quite small, four-ish and was, I, gosh, I don't mean to sound boastful, but it, it's just a fact. I was British ballet champion by the, I was Northwest champion by the age of 10 or 11. And then I was British champion by the age of 12. So, wow. and I'm not saying that to impress people, but just that is my character. I'm like, I'm all in. If I do something, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all in. So yeah. And I, so dancing and ballet and that discipline gave me a lot. It really did. You don't realize at the time, but but that's building life skills Definitely. and confidence and flexibility, not just physically, but mentally to to kind of deal with the things that I um, that I went on to do and, and maybe gave me some of the robustness that I had to have to go on to do the careers that I've done as well. So, yes, yeah, so that was a great, a great training ground for me. Definitely. I definitely think there's something in those early days, those experiences that we have, they cultivate something in us. And mm. I can understand where the ballet, that routine and having to show up every day, you know, has a carryover into your life. But where do you think that curiosity came in? Was there someone or something that kind of prompted that search inside you when you were younger? Oh, definitely. My granddad, he was, you know, when, um, the Chris Tarrant program was on. I always used to say this when he was alive and he died a, a number of years ago now. He was 94, I think, when he died. And to this day, still, if he was alive, he would be my phone a friend. There is nothing that man didn't know about, <laughs> about everything. And he left school, God bless him, when he was, I think, 11 or 12. So he wasn't an educated man in the official sense. But this curiosity and love of learning, he just absorbed and retained the information as well he just wherever we were whatever we were doing I'd spend like hours in the garden with him and he'd be talking to me about plants and how you grow you know vegetables and then this type of tree and what the insects do and you know and then we would always sit down and we'd watch the news together at least you know once a day he watched the news every, every time it was on and would explain to me you know, about what was going on in the world and and I just maybe I felt his kind of like passion for that and I guess I loved the attention that when he spoke to me and was explaining all these concepts, I loved that too. So yeah, from him probably. And I also think maybe because he didn't, you know, have the formal education that actually I think he really would have liked, he, you know, really believed strongly in education. My mum, you know, he really kind of pushed her in a nice way to excel at school and you know, she kind of did that with me, was very, you know, <laughs> kept my nose to the grindstone, certainly, in my academic studies. So <laughs> I, I can relate to that. For me, it was my grandma who got that curiosity going, who, who kind of sparked that in me. And, um, you know, I think we came from a fairly similar background. I was from a working class background also. Yeah. And yeah. That prompted in me a wanting to go beyond my circumstances. Yeah. And, and in the same way as your granddad, you know, for me, I realized it's not where you're from. If I work hard enough, I can get somewhere. But I struggled with school because of the rules and the rigidity. 
and I had freedom as, and I still have freedom as my highest value. Yeah. But you seem to excel in school and within that um, system and that structure. Talk to me a little bit about that, Helen. It's a really good point because, as you say, now freedom and autonomy and not being told what to do is, yeah, is right at the top of my values list. And I do think that is in, you know, almost a compensation for perhaps that rigidity of childhood. So maybe I just, I worked within the parameters that I had, but I think it's done me well in terms of now I know what I really don't want. I don't like being told what to do. I like to be the decision maker unless I'm asking for input. But yeah, I I also think, you know, my mum, more so than my dad, was very strict growing up as well. And, you know, she did have kind of firm boundaries and, you know, I (laughs) really, really had to toe the line. So I don't know that that rebelliousness came out till I think that probably kicked in in my teenage years thinking about it. And I certainly certainly pushed the boundaries then. I don't think that's unusual. I think we all try it at that age, don't we? <laughs> Just um, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but then from then on, it, it never went away. So, yeah. <laughs> and when you look back, I find it really interesting. There's that old New York Times article where they took two kids that grew up together and they went on two different trajectories and it was actually an ad and the New York Times used it to say the kid that read the New York Times went on to be successful and the other one didn't. And I find it interesting to look back, who was I hanging around with at that age and what was the trajectory that I was supposed to go on versus the one that I did? When you look back at Helen at that age and you see where you went and where your peers went, do you notice anything interesting or anything significant in that? Oh, that's a really good question. I guess, and it links into to kind of what you just brought up, I guess I knew from being, I mean, literally, gosh, as little as I can remember, three or four, I knew I was going to university because I had the trajectory, that trajectory set out for me. My mom had um, done, had gone back to college and done her degree when she had a full-time job she had two small children. I think I was two when she started it and my brother was 10. She had a family, a husband, a full-time job to do. And, you know, she, she wanted to get her degree. She wanted, you know, to fulfill, you know, that part of her potential. So I remember talking about this and her lesson to me was you do this when you're young, you know, you get that out of the way. Once you've got your degree, you can do what ever you like, but make no mistake, this is your trajectory. You go to school, you get your A-levels, you go to university, then then it's almost then you choose your own path. But So I didn't really maybe have a choice and perhaps I just always accepted that that was the path, albeit there was a couple of times I didn't want that to be the path, but actually it served me really, really well. So I don't regret that at all. And I completely understand what she wanted for me. She wanted better for me than she had. So it's interesting when you look back, isn't it? It's, yeah. I yeah. think a lot of parents, they go through that thing. It's not living through your child, but you want your child to have more options than you did. And yeah. I think for some of us, we can be pushed in a direction where we perhaps resent that. And then others, it gives you that structure that you perhaps can't find for yourself at that impressionable age. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, talking about kind of what my peers did, I certainly had a kind of envy of them two or three points in my life, like my dancing buddies. When I was 12, two of the girls in my, my dance school went off and got places at the Royal Ballet. They went off to White Lodge. And I just, that for me as a, what, a 10-year-old, I think, when they went, that for me was like the dream, you know. I really would have loved to do that. I was nowhere near good enough to be, to be able to go there, but... I don't think I knew that and probably best that I didn't, to be honest, but I, you know, I would have loved to do that. And I went to the library and I got out all these books about the Royal Ballet and about, you know, what life was like there and being a ballerina and sat and read those and had real, yeah, real envy, I guess, in, in a nice way. I was very pleased for them, but... And the same, I guess, at 16 as well. Lots of my friends have went off to dancing college, dancing school or, um, you know, kind of theatre art schools and went off and became professional dancers. And and by that point, I think I could have done that if, if I would have, you know, if, if I'd been allowed to choose that. I wasn't allowed to do that. But again, I there's part of me that would have loved to do that. You know, my mum had it very clear that, you know, that wasn't an option and... And by that point as well, I was, I think I knew I needed mental stimulation as much as I loved kind of the dancing and the expression. And maybe that's where I had my freedom and my self-expression was in the dance kind of rather than, you know, kind of finding my way or kind of on the academic stuff. She was kind of the antithesis of one of those pushy you know, stage school moms, she was, she just let me get on with it. And if I won, that was great. And if I came last, she didn't care as long as I was enjoying it. So I had real freedom and I did that because I wanted to do it. So that was a nice balance, actually, when I look at it that way. Yeah, definitely. As you were saying that, I was thinking about that right brain, logical, intellectual yeah. side being overly stimulated. And we do need the creative expression side. So I think you you were dancing throughout that whole time, you said, right? Oh, yeah. I danced nonstop from being four. I started doing competitions when I was about maybe, in, oh, I can't remember exactly, maybe eight, something like that. And yeah, it just got more and kind of more intense, spent more time doing it, more classes, you know, more hardcore as I kind of went up through the levels and did all the exams in ballet, tap, modern, and, you know, every holiday, every weekend in the summer, certainly we were always at a dance competition. God bless him, my dad got dragged around to all these dance competitions up and down the country. And, you know, actually, you know, well, he seemed to enjoy it. He'd, you know, kind of take the photos or just sit there and read his book. And he never complained. He was super, super supportive which was really, yeah, really, really made a difference to me that they were both there. It wasn't just me and mum time. My dad was there too. It was it was lovely. Yeah, you know, something so interesting in what you're sharing is the fact that there's competition, which is a way for you to assess yourself and your performance. For me, I had martial arts and you have a belt system or you're in the gym and you know this is my personal best that, you know, I've lifted before. And it gives you a way to gauge your performance and what I find is missing a lot in a lot of the young people I talk to is this participation culture, which is good for many reasons, but it's removed that ability for us to assess where we are against everybody else. And I think that's something that's important in the world, because when we get out into working and in university, the world is a series of auditions and tests. 
Yeah, it really is, actually. And as much as, you know, I think as adults, we strive kind of not to compare ourselves or or use comparison as a tool to beat ourselves up in terms of kind of, you know, assessing where you are and setting out a path for progress. It can be really, really useful. And it almost kind of sets goals. I always knew what the next goal was. I passed grade one. Then I wanted to pass grade two. And actually by grade three, I wanted to get a better result than I'd got for grade two. So, yeah, having that kind of structure of goals, setting those goals, achieving them, knowing what it took, you know, it would take to get there, I think exactly, I think was was very helpful. Definitely, definitely. So you're doing your dancing, you've got the intellectual side. And I know from a previous conversation that you were playing piano at that point, And mm-hmm. that interestingly also led to you going to one of the highest points of academia. Talk us through that story. Oh, this is funny. Yeah, I learned the piano for years and years and years. And I was so bad at it. I never even, I never even got to take grade one. I was like spectacularly bad at the practical, which for somebody that was kind of coordinated, you know, still kind of bemuses me. I don't know why I didn't get it, but I just didn't get it. On the other hand, I flew through the theory exams and I, I don't know, I passed like as high as, I think up, up to grade eight, got those and like no problem, sailed through those. But actually playing the damn thing was a was an entirely different kettle of fish. But yeah, how that plays into my story is that my piano teacher was actually the daughter of one of my mum's work colleagues. And she was a really, really, really lovely girl. And she got a place at Oxford University and she'd come home still and teach me in the summer holidays. And, you know, she'd tell me about it and, you know, tell me what life was like and how beautiful it was and all these colleges and, you know, that they'd dress up to take their exams, you know, because we were this kind of specialist called Subfusk. We we were this um, kind of black and white, you know, like the, the traditional gown, if you will, to sit exams, but also for formal dinners on a Sunday. I mean, she'd tell me all these tales and this just, it really captured my imagination. And I just decided like, this sounds cool. I'm going to go there. And I didn't know what Oxford was. I probably hadn't heard of Cambridge. You know, I, I didn't understand kind of the process or the selection or that in those days it was very, you know, it's different these days. In those days, it was very heavily biased towards kind of privately educated or public, if you will, education. So to have ambitions to go to Oxford as a kid, a northern comprehensive who nobody in her family had been to university was, you know, was ambitious at best. And I remember at school in the fifth form, it's all different now, isn't it? They call it something else. But I was 15. It was just before GCSEs. We were having to have career counselling and guidance. And what what do you want to do? And I I told this guy, uh, oh, I'm going to go to Oxford. And he laughed at me. And I just, it didn't actually at the time even insult me. It only insulted me with hindsight like how how do you know how dare you laugh at some child's ambitions particularly if you looked at the capability of that child like how how dare you stamp on that dream but I didn't take it as that I just took it as like listen this is this is done there was no question there was no doubt in my mind 
that I was going there and, you know, he just didn't get it. So I'm glad I had that. It was a naivety of attitude, to be honest, but I'm glad I had that. And actually, you know, turns out I was right, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. When I hear my mum talk about, you know, the 70s and the 80s, there seems to be this thing of the people in authority, we would believe their opinion over our own sometimes. Yeah. So what do you think gave you that resilience to say, well, I don't care if that person's in authority or, or that person, you know, doesn't believe in me. I know what I can achieve. Where does that come from? I think generally, you know, exactly. I, I did have a reverence for authority that wasn't always due. But on that topic, there was a knowingness inherent. And as, as I'm saying this, I'm kind of like touching my heart. There was this inner knowingness that I just knew I was going to get there. I'd wanted it since I was 10. You know, so I'd thought about it, I dreamed about it, I'd read books about it. You know, this is a, this wasn't a kind of spur of the moment whim. Oh, well, that sounds like a good place to go. I'll give it a go. I'd set the intention for it, thought about it, dreamed about it, you know, planned for it. And by six, by 15, 16, I knew what it took to get there and I knew it was within my capabilities and... I don't think I was an arrogant child. I hope I'm not coming across as arrogant, but Definitely I just, not. it's what I wanted to do. And I didn't, there was no other, you know, I, I was actually kind of disappointed on the application form where you had to apply for more than one university. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but what's the point? Because that's where I'm going. <laughs> and, it, and it really I was, that. I was, I was that single minded yeah. about it. So <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? So the determination pays off. We get to Oxford. Yeah. And I'm interested in the dynamic of Oxford. You mentioned that there's a class divide on one hand, and then you went into to study politics, philosophy, and economics, which are typically male-dominated industries or, or perhaps were at that point. So what were the dynamics at play during your experience at Oxford studying those subjects? I have to say, I don't think I was prepared for kind of what Oxford was going to be and at that time there was certainly a huge class divide you know like I remember rocking up on the first day um, and queuing up to get all our bits and pieces of paper and paraphernalia and everything and somebody asking me what school I went to I didn't even understand the question I took the question, you know, very much as I do these days, I took the question on face value. So I told them what school I went to, you know, in St. Helens. And clearly they'd never heard of it because when they asked me what school I went to, they meant, did I go to a, you know, one of, one of the public schools, one of the well-known, you know, the girls' private, you know, well, public schools. And I, do you know what, at that time I probably couldn't have even named one. So I was a little naive to that. And I would say I probably had a slight kind of, chip on my shoulder in terms of you know well maybe I, f I felt kind of looked down on yeah so I had a kind of slight chip on my shoulder kind of, kind of about that so I found it very difficult to be honest it really was a whole new world for me being away from home as well much as Gosh, by 17, I was desperate to get away from home. I had ticked all those boxes. I had jumped all those fences. Everything that they wanted me to do, I'd, I'd done it. I'd achieved it and more. And at that point, I'm like, 
right now this is me this is my time this is I get to do what I want to do and be who I want to be so yeah it was very interesting but it was also interesting that the college that I chose particularly and this was part of the reason as well to be honest was it was very well known for having a great rugby team which Mm -hmm. obviously is part of my history what you know where I'm from because I'm from St Helens and um was very heavily dominated you know there was like 75 percent guys and 25 percent girls at least probably even more than that at that time so it was interesting that 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 theme then carried on throughout throughout my career as well. So I do actually, you know, much as I didn't enjoy it a, a lot of the time, again, it was great training ground and I can see how it served me. The parts of the experience that I did enjoy were actually every summer term. I really loved that. I really enjoyed that. You know, it was all the, the parties and the social lives. And yes, there were exams involved as well. But being you know quite social and quite people um oriented i really i loved that I, I really really enjoyed all those events yeah so you ended up on the trading floor in the financial industry but before you arrived there you chose politics philosophy and economics when you yeah. chose those subjects did you have an idea of the trajectory or the industry or career that you wanted to go into and, and did that stay true or did it pivot at some point Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I chose PPE. We call it PPE, which is funny because PPE has a very different connotation in these lockdown and COVID days. But I chose that because I'd done economics as a new A-level and I really, really did enjoy that. I loved learning about, you know, how kind of supply and demand work and how all these forces interact and kind of the theory, but also kind of how that theory did or didn't translate into kind of the real world and how, you know, lots of other factors played into kind of what's going on in the world. So for me, um, to, so, I, so I, I applied to LSE, London School of Economics, which is kind of actually, you know, I would have been very, very happy there because, I think maybe I'd have enjoyed the course there a little bit more. Oxford was, in those days, a little old-fashioned, bless it. But the diversity of having the economics, the philosophy and the politics was really interesting. I didn't get the philosophy, I have to say. I don't think I had the maturity at that age. I think I was a young you know, kind of what, however old, I was 17 or 18 when I went, but I was a young kind of immature teenager at that age. And I didn't get, the questions didn't kind of resonate with me. So I found those hard. The one bit of, of philosophy that I did really enjoy was philosophy of mind, because it was very, it was almost kind of psychology. It was understanding kind of behavior and why people do what they do. So, you know, the seeds were definitely sown there for all the kind of human behavior and, and stuff that I've gone on to study since. And, you know, funnily enough, it's, I don't know, gosh, most, well, a lot of the books that I choose to read. I'm not a fiction fiction reader by any means. I'm literally, I'm, I'm sat looking at a book of, of Schopenhauer, you know, and so I love reading about philosophy and, and particularly like kind of stoicism and, and those type of things these days. So it, it obviously did sow some seeds, even though I didn't necessarily resonate with that so much at those days. But in terms of career, I got, you know, kind of to the end of my time and I... I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
I guess I was being, I was used to being told what to do. And my mum had left that bit from then on up to me. So I knew lots of things I didn't want to do. You know, I, gosh, I, my energy in those days, I knew, you know, sitting me at a desk, you know, I, I thought about kind of accountancy. Actually, I thought about being a chartered surveyor. So I wasn't far off on the property yeah. stuff as well at those times. But I just need, no, I needed something dynamic, something, you know, where no two days are the same, something very, very stimulating. And my boyfriend at the time, who was Oxford as well, who had been at Oxford, was working for Citibank. So he was also in foreign exchange on the trading floor there as a derivatives trader. And he would come home and kind of, you know, again, tell me about his day and explain how all this went. And, you know, in those days particularly, there were always, you know, stories about kind of the antics that (laughs) used to go on the trading floor. And I just thought, like, that sounds like my cup of tea. It's, you know, you get paid well if you perform. You, you know, no two days are the same. And it sounds like fun. And fun is a really big part of my life and of what I do and what I try to bring to things as well. I think if you enjoy what you do and you can, you know, it honestly, it's one of my principles of investing. Make making money fun. You bring a whole different energy to it and it just makes life easier if you enjoy what you're doing. So, yeah, that's how I ended up at um well, that's how I chose banking and why I chose JP Morgan specifically. Again, we, gosh, we've shown how competitive I am, or I used to be here. <laughs> he really wanted to go to JP Morgan because JP Morgan at the time was renowned as having the best training program. But he didn't get in, so he went to Citibank instead. And I thought, right, sod you, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make sure I get in there. And yes, that determination, again, paid off and... Yeah, I got accepted. So, <laughs> there's such a great thread that goes through your story. You know, you arrive at Oxford. There's a class divide. It's a male-dominated industry. Mm. In Oxford, you study politics, philosophy, and economics, and then you move into the banking industry, which has a class divide. Yeah, is typically male-dominated, and those financial markets are moved by what the politicians do. They're yeah. moved by the psychology of the masses. And oh, yeah. Of course, economics is a huge part of that. So there's such a, a trend and a theme going through that. So you get to JP Morgan, you, you qualify again. There's a kind of a test that Helen passes that others can't and that resilience. You then go through the training program. Where does that take you next? What are those first days like on the trading floor? It was brilliant. It was super exciting. We, you know, there was a whole group of graduates that were taken in together and we all kind of were doing different roles in different parts of the bank. But there was a real kind of camaraderie uh, between the graduates. So that was really nice. But let me tell you, you, you know, you didn't walk in as this kind of privileged kind of, you know, graduate, oh, kind of welcome, let's roll out the red carpet. It's literally you're in there and like, right, you sit with the desk assistants, you learn what they do. You go to the back office and you learn how this nitty gritty works. So literally, you know, it wasn't kind of sit down day one and kind of start talking to clients. It was like, you learn this stuff from the bottom up. Mm. And I loved that. I, in fact, two of my best friends to this day were our desk assistants that we had because in those days you know this is pre-automation you know and the desk assistants would sit and kind of input manually all the trades that we did and I loved that I am you know I think that's 
that's something that I mean I like being like it but also I can't change it I just am very down to earth um I don't know if that's because I'm northern I don't know if that's just part of my personality I don't know but I liked them because they were just real as well so I was asking about the first few days and you're you're talking about the desk assistant. And what comes to my mind as you're talking about that is the Wolf of Wall Street or the Big Short (laughs) where they're just connecting phone calls. Is that what it's like where you don't really have the respect yet? You have to earn it and you you really start at the bottom and then kind of grow as you go. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, yes. It's very intense. And in those days, kind of the the trading aspect and executing the deals wasn't automated at all. So we'd, if, you know, somebody had a big deal to do, it was literally all your traders would stand up and be on phones executing this deal. And the energy in that was electric and was, was really exhilarating. So yeah, we, you know, we weren't let loose obviously on, on clients or doing deals, you know, until we'd, you know, got to a kind of a, a certain level, but just being part of that, you know, again, you know, it was set, your trajectory was kind of set out, right, that's, you know, where you're heading to, you know, and you knew you wanted to be like this salesperson or like that person or, and you know, the ones you didn't want to be like, but it was, uh, yeah, they, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's very, you know, fast paced, dynamic, full of big personalities, you know, being in a rugby college had been great training, to be honest, for being yeah. on the trading floor and managing all those egos. There is so much testosterone, or there was at the time, so much testosterone on that trading floor. It was, you know, something you had to navigate. And I do think you have to be a particular kind of person, a particularly a, a particular kind of woman to be able to deal with that. You know, a wallflower isn't going to thrive, thrive in that environment. You know, to be honest, you've got to be able to take banter. You have to be able to give banter. And that's how you kind of establish respect and a working relationship. And, and yeah, you know, I still, I love working with, I love working with women, but I, I particularly love working with men as well. Cause yeah, that, that's what I'm used to. And yeah, they were great days. We've talked about that before in the past, that in the property space you're in now and in the banking space, Many women find that they have to kind of out-alpha the men. They have to become a masculine version of themselves to thrive and survive in there. And what I've always found interesting with you is that you retain that empathetic side, that feminine side. Was that something you always had back then or is that something that you cultivated over time? It's a very good question and it's kind of difficult for me to see in myself because I think I... I mean, I certainly agree with you. And I did see a lot of that, yeah, kind of women trying to be men. And I'm sure I fell into that category as well. My adrenals and kind of what happened next will will tell you that I tried to live, you know, and tried to kind of like be mannish and and deal, you know, deal with things like that, that way. But when I saw kind of women behaving like that, there was just such a... Uh, just a repulsion to me that I just knew I wasn't capable of that almost from like a soul level and I probably could have been a lot better gone a lot farther got paid a lot more to be quite frank if I had played that game but I just I just couldn't be that I just couldn't I couldn't do that you know and that's not to say you know everyone's like that it's not I've got some fabulous you know, women that I worked with 
from banking again that are still my friends to these days but the examples where you did see that were just abhorrent to me mm-hmm. yeah and I remember kind of purposefully I remember seeing an example and I remember distinctly like looking at that example and thinking I do not want to be like that and almost like actually my ambition died in that moment I got to a certain level and my ambition died because I looked at like what this woman had done and I just thought I can't do that I can't be that but you know what maybe that did me a favor maybe I retained my own authenticity that way yeah it's such an interesting and pivotal moment because I imagine there's a conflict. The achiever part of you says, well, I don't care what anyone else says. I want to get to the height of that. Oh, yeah. But as you said, use the word soul. There's that knowing inside of, is this my lane? Do I fit there? So was there some strife and internal conflict at that point? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember like I, I was a VP and the next kind of step on from that is, or was at the time, it was MD. And that's not a quick nor an easy process, but that was certainly, you know, like, right, okay, how do we get there? What do I need to do? And, you know, no saying I I, I would have got there or I even had the potential to get there. But I looked at, it was a woman MD at the time, and I just thought, if that is what you have to do to get to that position as a woman, I'm just not that, like, that's my boundary. That's my line and I'm not crossing it. And I'm afraid I'm just going to have to give up on that dream because I won't go there. Now, you know, maybe I should have been a bit more resourceful and tried to do it my own way, but that wasn't the decision I made. And, you know, I didn't do too bad anyway. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. My version of that, as you know, was in corporate for 12 years in, in a couple of Fortune 500s. And at some point I had the same thing where I looked at the directors years older than me and I said, do I want to be in my 50s working 90 hours a week? Yes, I have a home in the country, but I'm so stressed even when I go there my kids don't know me. But all of those things, if I projected myself 20 years in the future and I just knew I didn't want it. And what I later learned was my value on freedom is my highest value yeah. was what was causing that conflict. So now that you know your values through the Martini work, yeah. do you think that was driving the decision that even though there's conflict, I'm comfortable to move in that direction of what feels right for me? Ooh, that is a good question because I was kind of happy there in my role. I had a boss at the time who was amazing. He was incredibly supportive appreciative of what I did and we worked together literally kind of sat side by side day in day out for seven years so I wasn't unhappy kind of in the role or even but you know what actually now I'm thinking about it so do you know what he did he gave me an enormous amount of free reign (laughs) yes there's some things I had to do and we know if we had this project and that project needs to be delivered for example because I was kind of more on the managed side of it but by that side by that time but he just let me get on with it. There was no micromanaging, which I had seen. And yes, yeah, so I did have freedom, albeit in the corporate world. So I was living in my values in, and kind of with my values, albeit in, you know, kind of what looks as kind of, or was a box, but I had a lot of freedom in that box. 
And maybe I would have got to the position where actually I just needed to spread my wings and really pursue, you know, kind of freedom and autonomy myself. But, you know, as the story happens, my my body took over and made that <laughs> decision for me. So, <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you've mentioned that. What I want to ask you here, Helen, is this kind of pressure cooker environment. It manifests for different people in different ways. It creates this resilience where you need to be strong and that it kind of navigates you through that process. But what I see in a lot of the people I talk to is that also creates some level of trauma or a breakdown in health or of the body. Did you recognize or did you realize at any point that that process, whilst it helped you, also there was the other side of the equation where it caused some issues or caused your body to just kind of break down? I think there were a number of factors that that contributed to that. And so kind of what actually happened was I got ill. I was having kind of fatigue issues, but not just, oh, I'm, I'm tired. I mean, I couldn't stay awake and I would sleep. Of a weekend, I'd be sleeping at least 20 hours a day. Wow. And even during the week, you know, my boss was amazing and amazingly supportive. He'd let me get in at, at nine o'clock and leave at five o'clock, certainly towards the end, which, you know, on a trading floor, you know, <laughs> you just don't do. That's not, that's not part of the deal. But that's literally, you know, kind of all I could manage. And to be honest, to even managing that, I'd have, you know, a can of Red Bull for my breakfast. I'd have however many coffees, probably three or four coffees during the day. And that was what was keeping me going. You know, I didn't know anything about kind of nutrition or that that was actually just adding and, you know, making the situation even worse. But that's how we had lived our lives. And I was engaged by this point. And my fiance at the time was a trader as well. And that was just what we did. You know, it was just kind of standard that, you know, we had Red Bull for breakfast. And and, and, uh, and we certainly, you know, if we were going out of a weekend, you know, to stay awake, you know, if it was going to be a late night, you'd have a Red Bull before you went out. It was just... That was just, you know, what you did. I don't know. We didn't. We never took anything stronger. So maybe, maybe Red Bull was was a better choice than some of the the, uh, the things that other people took. <laughs> but yeah, it was a very difficult time and process, kind of to. Oh gosh, even even kind of process really. It was. Um, I'd been ill or. I knew I wasn't right for at least a year and I'd been to the doctors and I'd been to tests and I'd seen all these specialists and I got tested for everything, literally, and everything came back as I was the picture of health. And I'm like, believe me, I'm sleeping 20 hours a day of a weekend. This is not the picture of health. Mm-hmm. And so it was very frustrating because I just wanted to know what the label was because once you've defined the problem, then you can find a solution to it. You know, very left brain. What's the problem? Let's identify it. Let's fix it. Right, done. And that's not how it happened. And the frustration of living with that and trying to explore all these different avenues to find out what the issue was, was immensely frustrating. And I would, every time a result came back saying, no, 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 this is okay. No, 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 that's okay. No, 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 these levels are within normal range. I would cry because... You know, it was another kind of roadblock to to stop me getting an answer, to stop me finding a solution. And actually, that's ultimately what it came to. 
my thyroid had been tested for the, oh, I don't know, like umpteenth time. I lost track of how, how often that got tested. And it was fine. And I just burst out crying on the trading floor. Not cool. Um, <laughs> and I said to my boss, I, I just I just can't do this. I'm just, I need to take time out. And actually before that, my friend had also, yeah, the weekend before that, but my friends had intervened and said, how's you are going to kill yourself if you carry on like this as well? So, you know, they'd watched me go through all this investigation. And, and at one point, gosh, talking about substances, they thought I had narcolepsy, you know, where you keep falling asleep because I couldn't stay awake. They thought I had narcolepsy. So they did put me on um kind of methamphetamine, you know, a proper pharmaceutical version. But yeah, they had me on that. And it did keep me awake for a few weeks. But even after that, I would started sleeping. They're like, no, no, you shouldn't be able to sleep taking these. And I'm like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> That's what happened. And they're like, okay, it's not that. So that was 2000 and at the beginning of 2008. And I had a month off and then, yeah, never went back. You know, the, the markets also changed at that time. And I put my what hand timing. up. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what? With hindsight, <laughs> honestly, it was beautiful. But I put my hand up for redundancy and my boss was, was, was very kind and just said, yep, yeah, you know, I recognize that this is what you need to do to look after you. So um, yeah, it was very it's kind amazing. and let me go. The fact that you asked probably a month or a few months before one of the biggest crashes <laughs> that we had in the financial markets yeah. and they agreed to it when maybe they wouldn't have been able to a month later. The fact that the breakdown occurred for you at that point is quite poetic. <laughs> and I talk to so many people and there's this transition that I see where they're living the life that's not perhaps congruent to who they've become. Mm -hmm. And the transition is one from medication to meditation. It's yeah. that intellectual to the emotional. There's the real masculine to the more feminine. And I definitely went through that too where I have to go into, well, what am I actually feeling? Yeah. Wow, what an interview. Helen's one of my favorite people anyway, but I think that might be one of my favorite interviews so far. We were having such a good time that we lost track of time and just kept the tape rolling, so to speak. So we decided to split our chat into two parts, and I really, really hope you enjoyed part one. In part two, we pick up on Helen's life after investment banking, and the transformation and reinvention of Helen into the woman we all know and love today. Make sure to subscribe to get notified when part two is released, and we'll see you over there to continue the conversation.